Now we come to a passage from Colossians that we'll be speaking on in just a minute. Um, so this is Colossians 3, I think it's 1, 1 to 8, yes, from the New Revised Standard Version. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Sorry, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you were also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Set your minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above. It's what we're told to do at the start of Colossians chapter 3. And if we do that, if we set our minds and hearts on things above, that means leaving behind some of those things which are earthbound. The list is fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires and idolatrous greed. And we all catch the sense of disapproval conveyed by the religious terminology. But what relevance do the words have for us in our day and age? Fornication is a good old-fashioned word, but it refers to any way in which children, women and men are objectified and exploited in today's highly sexualized society. And although we live in a culture which does enshrine women's rights, women are still objectified here in Britain in the 21st century. As are men, if since Paul Dark was screened by the BBC relatively recently. Impurity refers to the lack of moral boundaries which results in people's lives dissolving into chaos. Passion is the loss of self-control that makes people say and do things they would never think of saying or doing in the cold light of day. Evil desires are those addictive desires which monopolise our time and attention and rob us of the capacity to live life to the full. And idolatrous greed is the materialism which lies at the root of so much of the insecurity and dissatisfaction which blights our society. These things all have destructive capacity. So Paul says we should be ruthless in eradicating them from our lives. Put them to death with Christ, is his advice. You might have been involved in these things in the past, he says, but they have no place in the new life which God has given you. You've died with Christ to these things. And you've been raised with Christ. So these things should no longer have any place in the people whose lives are shaped by the worship of the living God. When we are immersed in these things, worship is the last thing on our agenda. And sometimes they still threaten to drag us down or pull us back. But as we worship the living God in a service like this one, 
And in our worship, we set our hearts and our minds on things that are above. The God whom we worship is committed to extricating us from the hold that these things sometimes manage to get a hold on our lives. To set us free. To release us from them. To enable us to put them to death. And then Paul kind of picks up a part B of the list. And this other things we need to get rid of. Things like anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive language. We are to lay these things aside like a filthy set of clothing. And to put on the new personality. Which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our creator. The second list is different to the first. It zooms in on the fallout that results from broken and damaged relationships. These are all attitudes or behaviours which belong to the sphere of interpersonal relationships and they are sins which frequently crop up when something goes wrong. Anger is so easily our response when someone else upsets us. They may have done so deliberately or thoughtlessly, but if it hurts, we will feel anger. And the more vulnerable, stressed or under pressure we feel, the more prone we are to the red mist coming down. And the anger in us can then all all easily trigger an answering response of anger in them, and that just quickly escalates then into wrath. Wrath is when we lose our temper. And that can mean shouting, swearing, throwing things, storming out, clenched fists, all calmness and gentleness swept away in the incoming tide. And if that is allowed to fester, then over a period of time, as anger seeds, it breeds resentment. We brood and think about what that person has done and how we feel about it and what they deserve and how we should get even. And we ponder about ways of getting our own back and making the other person suffer and hurt like we hurt. And slander can be one of the weapons we use as we start to use words to undermine them in the eyes of other people. We complain about them. We portray them in a negative light. We try and get other people on our side as we begin to draw the battle lines. And then comes verbal abuse, where to their face or behind their back, we run them down and take them apart. And truth might be a casualty as we launch an all-out verbal assault designed to batter down their self-esteem and leave them defenceless for an all-out character assassination. This dissent from anger through wrath, to malice, slander and abusive language is one which is scarily swift and easy to make. And the damage we cause to other people and to ourselves in the process can be colossal. Once lit, the flames of anger are not easily extinguished, especially when someone else's anger pours petrol on the flames. Indulging feelings of resentment can be like fashioning weapons that we use to attack someone else. And once those weapons are in our, in our hands it's very hard not to use them. Unkind words, once spoken, can never be retracted. And their destructive power can result in lasting emotional damage. Some of us know what that feels like. And we carry scars from what other people have said about us, or have said to us, 
of what they've done to us, going back years, sometimes even decades. Sometimes it still hurts. Heard the other day about a, a, a couple who've been living for ages and ages together um, and they kind of celebrated 60 years of marriage. The old man was asked, what's the secret? And he said, when my wife was a girl, he said, she was spoken to very harshly and very unkindly by her father. He was quite abusive towards her. And so I've learned over the years always to be very gentle and calm and compassionate towards her. And the interviewer said, really? After all these years, she still remembers what happened? More than ever, he said. More than ever. Sometimes these things are said and done in families. Sometimes these things can be said and done in church. Whether Brighton Road or some other fellowship. And then church, which should have been a place of safety or security, can become a place where we are left feeling vulnerable and frightened. Some of us will be aware of ways in which we've inflicted pain on others through ignorance on our part or weakness or our own deliberate fault. Or sometimes we've said and done stuff just because we were lashing out because there was so much pain and trauma in our own lives. It was almost involuntary on our part. And this downward spiral starts with anger. It's where it begins. And sometimes... Though it's included in the list of sins, anger is a right response to what other people have said or done because it's way out of order. Way out of order. Alistair Campbell says that people react angrily when they perceive a major threat or an intolerable frustration in a situation from which they cannot easily escape. Thus anger is often that it's most powerful in domestic situations since people feel that they're most vulnerable, feeling of loss, of love and self-esteem. And inasmuch as its best church should be like a family, church could be a place where anger actually is, is near the surface sometimes. But churches don't always hang, handle anger very well. Campbell talks about the problem of chronic niceness in churches. Where anger is buried, or suppressed, or denied. And how that results in a fertile breeding ground for resentment and hostility. And when it bubbles up, it bubbles up quite destructively sometimes. So where there is anger, what do we do with it? The first thing is to acknowledge that it's there. And it's real. Because if we do that, we actually reduce its destructive potential. And then to think about, so why am I feeling like this? What caused that anger? Who provoked it? And how? And how have I responded? How has my anger made the situation worse through what I've thought and said and done? And having named what has happened and reflected upon the depth of impact it's had upon our lives and how we feel about it, we stand at a crossroads. 
Do we follow down the line of anger giving way to wrath and resentment and, and slander and abusive speech? Or do we say, actually, I don't want to go that way. The only way to stop the downward spiral is through repentance and forgiveness. And neither is an easy option or a quick solution. But it's what we are about in church. Where we have sinned, and we all have in one way or another, Jesus calls us to repentance and offers us forgiveness. Where we have been sinned against, Jesus calls us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And that's a hard one. But it's our calling. I remember once being really, really cross with someone. And uh, yeah, they, they deserved it. No doubt about it at all. I remember praying, saying, I would find it easier to forgive them if they hadn't done it deliberately. But they knew what they were doing and they knew it would hurt and they still did it. That little voice popped into my mind. And how often do I forgive you when you do something deliberately? But let's be honest. Sometimes the damage that we have undergone is such that forgiveness is way, way down the line. Confronting what's happened, getting in touch with our emotions, beginning to work it through. Forgiveness can be a long and difficult journey sometimes. But Jesus knows what we've been through and he understands how we feel. And sometimes he looks for nothing more from us than a prayer. Jesus, I cannot let go of any of this. But please would you take it from me and release me from the hold it has on my life. Paul talks about putting off these things like changing a set of clothes, getting rid of dirty, wet, disgusting clothing and being clothed in a new person. And if you were out this morning in the wind and the rain, you would have got pretty drenched. When you're getting changed because you're cold and wet and your clothes are dirty, you don't do that in the middle of a storm. No point. You go home to somewhere where you're safe and warm and dry, and that's where you get changed. If you feel like you're in the middle of a storm, Jesus wants to bring you to a place where you are safe and warm and dry, where you can begin to work the stuff through and begin to let it go. And you might be in that place now. You might need to work your way towards finding that place. But ask him to help you get there if there's stuff you need to let go. In a few minutes, we'll be celebrating communion together. We actually moved communion to the service this morning so we could celebrate it in the context of, of this particular sermon on this particular text. Some of us will feel that this is a safe place for us. Others of us won't. But however we feel, Jesus welcomes us here to this table. When we come to communion, we don't come as a group of nice people whose lives are problem-free. 
Because even in Horsham you don't find such people. We don't come as people whose hearts are unburdened and whose relationships are perfect. We all come as hurting people. We come as people who have hurt others. We haven't treated them as we ought to have done. And in the quietness of our hearts, we need to admit that. We come as people who are hurting because of how we've been treated and we bring that pain with us to the table. And Jesus welcomes us all. And he welcomes each and every one of us on the identical basis of his healing and forgiving grace. It's the only way any of us find acceptance. So there's no pretense this morning. We come as people who've got it wrong and who have been wronged. And we come to the Saviour who knows all of that. Who knows what we've done. Who understands how we feel. Who is aware of where we come from. What we've suffered. And who welcomes us. And includes us all in the scope of his healing and forgiving grace. We're doing this this morning because it seemed right, just to be honest, about the fact that although church can be a place where people find acceptance and healing, it's also a place sometimes where people get hurt. I'm not thinking of any specific scenario or person here. It's just a reality. Church is a place which isn't full of, which isn't full of perfect people. We are all people who are hurting, who are damaged, and who therefore get it wrong sometimes. And we come to this table in response to God's grace, able to acknowledge that and not to pretend otherwise. Please don't think that I or anyone else supposes that celebrating communion at the end of the service will magically set everything right. Because it won't. And this is not some token exercise where we can say, well, we've had a service focused on reconciliation, you should be able to leave all that behind you now because it's sorted. Because it isn't. But if there are issues, then in this service we may be doing nothing more than opening a door into a room that might have been neglected for a long, long time, looking inside and thinking, oh my word, there's a massive amount of rubbish in there that needs sorting out one day. And all we're doing is saying, yes, the rubbish is there. We know that and we acknowledge it. And when the time is right for a clear out, then we'll do it. But we come to this table saying, Lord, you know the rubbish that there is. And I can't get rid of it at the moment. But Lord, accept me with it. And help me come to a place where we can sort it out. Because if the rubbish is there, then Jesus is there as well. It's not an empty room. It's not a deserted room. But Jesus is sitting in there waiting to sort it through with us. When the time is right. And he's patient and able to do that. So I'm not asking you to release this morning any emotions that you've kept under lock and key for years, because you might have coped for years that way. 
Nor is today necessarily the time to go and have a heart-to-heart with someone you've wronged or someone you need to forgive because we sometimes need to work a lot of emotional stuff through first. But today is the day when Jesus says, I know what's there. I know what you've done. I know what you've been through. I know what's happened and I know how you feel. And this morning you don't need to pretend that everything's fine and you're a perfect person in a perfect church. This morning, as we celebrate communion, we come to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He carried our sorrows. He shared our grief. He absorbed our pain. He took our guilt and our anger. The wrong we have suffered and the wrong we have done. And declares himself to be the saviour that each and every one of us without exception needs. That's why he died and rose again. That's why he welcomes us just as we are who we are to this table. That's why we remember him in bread and wine together this morning. On the screen are the words of the general confession. I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment in quietness, reading those through silently. There's more to come after this. But just a moment or two to read those words through in your heart and make your confession to God. And then we will say these words and the rest of the general confession together. But for the time being, a time of silence when you reflect on these words. <laughs> 